Everything that exists has its purpose to bring God glory. For the church, the purpose has always been the same. It's employing the word of God in the making of disciples for the glory of God. While we seek to live out this purpose, we affirm the identity of four organic evidences into a simple statement. By the grace of God, we desire to glorify Him by magnifying His Word to develop disciples who think biblically, live missionally, give generously, and love sacrificially. Sometimes when you say the word theology, people kind of cringe. As though, as though theology is some sort of remote body of hyper-abstract theory that's out there somewhere that doesn't really connect down here where we live our lives and do stuff. But theology is not, a, not an unapproachable word. It's not an unapproachable ideas. It's a compound word with a couple of different Greek roots. Don't let that freak you out. Theo, meaning related to God, right? And, and logi, from the Greek word logos, which simply means words. So theology is simply words about God. And when we do theology, there are, there are various sort of sub-disciplines in theology. For example, what you, uh, as you study God's word and as you grow as a disciple, what you believe about God the Holy Spirit, well, that's your pneumatology. What you believe about, about the person of Jesus Christ, who he was and what he achieved, that's your Christology. What you believe about salvation and how it comes to be in the heart of sinners who become saved, that is your soteriology. What you believe about the end times and the sequence and series of things as God brings about one day the consummation of this age, that is your eschatology. Do you see how much more educated you feel? McGregor Baptist Church is a church. And as a church, we share in a common ecclesiology, which is your theology of the church. And in fact, ecclesiology, since it it sort of forms the framework within which this body of Christ does what it does. Well, it, it's kind of important. We have a shared theological confession. The Baptist faith and message is this church's uh, shared theological framework for various aspects of theology, including everything we believe about ecclesiology, but we can be a bit, a bit more specific and a bit more refined as we express that. In the years since, since uh, 2015, we have, we have overwhelmingly devoted our time uh, from, from this, this platform in this place to the verse-by-verse -verse study of, of books of God's Word. That, that is a reflection of how we feel the Word of God should be treated, how we can keep ourselves on track regarding the whole counsel of God as uh, Brother Mark alluded uh, earlier in this service. We took quite, our, quite a while to go through the chapters verse by verse 
of the book of John. Twice we have interrupted our Sunday morning rhythm for a series of weeks to deal with some area of theology. And in both instances, the historical one and now this one, the issue has been ecclesiology, the church talking about, well, the doctrine of the church. In the early part of 2016, at a time when our church was, was undertaking to reconstruct our constitution and, and readdress some things that were true about us as a church, we did a series we called Vital Signs. That church, if I'm, I mean, that series, if I may, was, was kind of about form. And so formal ecclesiology. What is an elder body? And how is it supposed to function biblically? What, what is a deacon body? And how is it supposed to function if deacons are doing what the word of God assigns to them to do? What is the role of a, a congregation in a place where the congregation itself, as in aligned with God's word, has certain roles, responsibilities, and, and certain decision-making prerogatives that fall to the body of Christ? We spent a few weeks in the early part of 2016, more than six years ago. Now in the, in the uh, early part of autumn of 2022, we're going to look at some functional ecclesiology. What, what ought the church be about as the church does what it does? As we look in a moment together at our purpose statement, I hope you'll notice some things. First, I hope you'll notice that none of the ideas we'll be sharing are new. They are not, okay, let's announce a bold and brand new direction for our church. How dare we? How dare we? The purpose of the church was assigned by the church's creator some 2,000 years ago. We do not decide our purpose. That's really, really important. It is, the, it is the province of a creator to assign the purpose of that which is created. It is not within the rights of that which is created to tell its creator the why. Um, the word of God asks the rhetorical question, shall the thing created say to its creator, why have you made me? No, we don't declare our purpose, but we are permitted to discover and articulate it and to do so in a way that gives us a framework in shared language. Shared language is a good thing for a body of people. We use, for example, a common definition of love that if you attend McGregor for a number of weeks, you're gonna hear somebody define love either in your life group or standing here as an unconditional self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of one another. That's been this congregation's shared definition of love for some years. If you, uh, if you hang around long, you'll hear somebody say that the, the primary purpose of God in all things is his own glory and the secondary purpose of God in all things is the good of his people as he determines it. And you'll hear a lot of shared language around this body of Christ, and that's a good thing. It allows us to, to embrace together certain conclusions we have reached from the word of God. Again, we have a confession of faith as a congregation. So we get common language. We get some clarity of aims 
we get benchmarks. How can we evaluate how we're functioning? We get grounds yet again for personal challenge. Is this statement something with which I, I can personally be challenged as I have been challenged and our elders have been challenged and our teaching team has been challenged and, and our life group leaders have begun to be challenged even personally. So we've entitled this series, By God's Grace. And for this Sunday and the next four, we'll be looking at our new purpose statement. After which, by the way, we will return to the verse-by-verse -verse study of God's word. And I am super excited that where we're going next is the book of Jude. I cannot wait to do my part in walking through that marvelous, marvelous gem of a little book that is found in the second to last position in your New Testament. But for now, our purpose statement. I've got it in the notes, it's coming to the screen. Here it is. By God's grace, we desire to glorify God by magnifying his word to develop disciples who think biblically, live missionally, give generously, and love sacrificially. Let's, um, let's walk through the first part of that. I would make the argument that the first part of our purpose statement um, ought to be true for any body of people that's going to call itself a New Testament church. There are certain things that are universally true and divinely designed and assigned by our creator. And our purpose statement leads with an affirmation that we get and affirm those things that are absolutely essentially components of, of any faithful church. Roman numeral one on your outline, the means of the church. By God's grace. By God's grace is the means whereby you and I do anything of any value. I've given you a couple of scriptures. Romans chapter five, verse two. Romans five, verse two. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Grace in which we stand. It is a matter of our, our whole lives positioning that those of us who know Jesus dwell and stand in a context of his grace. Now that's absolutely essential if you understand what the word of God teaches about the nature of God and the problem of man. It is clear from the entire council of scripture that God is utterly righteous. He is utterly inflexibly, non-negotiably determined to be righteous in all things at all times without negotiation and with wrath and fire to back him up in his claims of utter and complete and inflexible and non-negotiable righteousness. 
That's the heart of God. That is near the very definition of the character of God is his righteousness. And here we are. We are the inheritors of sin nature, sin characteristics, and sinner status. Our opportunity to be otherwise originally forfeited in the Garden of Eden. And that failure passed down the generations without fail to you and me. I've said that we are born citizens in a world at war with God. And it's actually worse than that. Not only our nature, but our conduct. A little lie is a lie. A little reallocation of assets without permission is theft. A little gossip is damnable sin. And so it goes. And if you, if you think in terms of, well, now, Russell, Russell hang on a minute. Those are, just, those are just small matters. You have forgotten the holiness and righteousness of God. There are no small sins. And if you understand biblically the, the character of God and the corruptness of all mankind, including me and you, then you understand if we are to stand at all, we stand in grace. That ability by God to reach across the enormity of the gap, paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross and no other way, bridges the gap between exalted, holy, righteous God and horrific, sinful man by grace. We cannot earn it, we cannot deserve it. If you think you're going to be okay when you stand before God one day by any means apart from the blood of Christ accepted by you in repentance and faith, if you think you're going to earn a status where you stand before God and he says, hey, you did pretty good. You do not understand the nature of God. You do not understand the nature of man. It is his grace in which we stand. Another verse that says, Similar thing, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, on the importance of grace. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. All those alls and that every underscore that it's by God's grace. We've no means to accomplish anything else. Thus, the means of the church, the grace of God. Roman numeral two, the motive of the church, the big why. We've stated it like this. We desire to glorify God. We've already said it earlier in the service. Brother Ryan said it. The purpose of all created things is to glorify God. Remember, the purpose of a thing is assigned by its creator. And ultimately, heaven and earth and everything in them is, is the creation ultimately of our creator God. Therefore, 
His assigned purpose, which is his own glory, is reflected in all of his creation. The Pacific Ocean exists to glorify God. Jalapeno peppers exist to glorify God. Mercury, a metal you can pour back and forth. I know you got to handle it carefully. Exists to glorify God. Hubcaps exist to glorify God. The air you breathe exists to glorify God. The fact that you're breathing it exists to glorify God. And the you that remain alive because you appear to still be breathing exists to glorify God. That's the why. That's always the ultimate why. If you've got things going on in your life right now that you love, celebrate them. They're there for God's glory. If you've got things going on in your life right now that you hate, ask God to show you his glory even in your trial and even in your failure to which the application of his grace will show the glory of God. We dare not exist in any realm but grace and by any motive but the glory of God. Psalm 115.1. What a great verse. We live in a culture where it seems that the only virtue left is the virtue of being true to yourself and making yourself a big deal. Well, at least he was true to himself, is the grand virtue statement of our culture. What a catastrophe. The last thing planet Earth needs is Russell Howard being true to himself. The second to last thing planet Earth needs is you being true to yourself with your corrupt nature, deceptive heart, it's not about us. Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. Your life exists for his glory. It really is entirely about him. That's very, very liberating. And to the degree that chafes you, you have failed to grasp biblically his universe and your place in it. His glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that's pretty broad, right? There might be some hours of the day where you're neither eating or drinking. But whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We exist as a church. God's glory, by God's grace. Roman numeral three, the message of the church. The message of the church. This morning, all over this campus, life group teachers have and will stand up to teach. We will gather in here through the course of the week, our women's ministry, our men's ministry, 
our food pantry, our clothes closet, our missionary outreaches, our Wednesday night courses, and myriad, myriad other things will, will, be, will be undertaken. But in all cases, they'll be centered on the word of God. Our food pantry <laughs> exists to promote the word of God in the hearts of sinful people. We'll give away a whole lot of food for that opportunity, won't we? And we do and we should, and that's a good thing. Yeah, amen for that. Somebody's applauding that. I love that ministry. Our clothes closet, same thing. But without the word of God, all those ministries are doing is making the world a nicer place to go to hell from, and that ain't why we're here. The message of the church is the word of God. From the most wise and experienced and nuanced conversation regarding the subtleties of God's word that's happening in some of our, our most advanced, where the people have been saved for decades, adult life groups, down to a bunch of little kids who are going home learning, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We magnify God's word. 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. Classic passage from the Bible about the Bible. Paul speaking to his disciple Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and speaking down the ages to you and me. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. By the way, if there's a better one verse definition of what discipleship looks like in the whole Bible, I've never found it. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed and know from whom you've learned it. I love that. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. And I know some of you have and some of you haven't. But from the time you came to faith in Christ, you began to be hopefully ground into the word of God and, and grounded into the word of God. From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now out of that marvelous set of verses emerge five truths about God's work. Five essential things, and I haven't written these on your notes, but you can, you can put these out beside them on your outline if you're a physical note taker. Five things that are true about the word of God that, that, that motivate our magnification of God's word. First, God's word is inspired. The, the, the English of the ESV says, breathed out by God. Inspired, the, the root of inspired is the same root as respired, as in respiration, breathing. And the underlying Greek word is literally God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. It's not some collection of random historical opinions. Yes, God used human instrumentality across a range of time and a number of places and, and a, a, a number of people. But the, the root of all of it is the inspiration coming from God to deliver to you and I his written word. It is inspired. Second, it is inerrant. 
inerrant. That means it is without mistakes. It has no errors. It is not outdated. It is not outmoded. It is not being improved upon by modern cultural trends, whether those modern cultural trends are in the year 200 or the year 2022. It is without error. Third characteristic, and this is an amplification of the idea of inerrancy. Not only is it inerrant without error, it's infallible. Infallible means it cannot be found to be in error. Inerrant could be their mistakes and we hadn't found them yet. Infallible means they're not there. By faith, we assert that if we think we found a mistake, we're mistaken and have more to learn. That's the difference. Inerrant is there are no known mistakes. Infallible is there can be no mistakes. I, I, I illustrate it with my checkbook. I, yes, I'm old fashioned and I maintain a check registry. And because I maintain a check registry, that by the way makes me shockingly old fashioned. There are 10 million other things that are worse. But I maintain a checkbook. And once a month I get my bank statement. And I have a sort of a countedish soul sometimes. I love the process of reconciling my checkbook. And the instant I finish, the instant I finish reconciling my checkbook, which by the way, I don't get out of the chair till it's to the penny. <sighs> I am a tenacious reconciler. The instant I finish reconciling my checkbook, my checkbook is inerrant. There are no errors, it's right. But my checkbook is never infallible. Because this week, though I balanced my checkbook, I got my first of the month statement over the weekend. And at this moment, my checkbook is inerrant. And today on the way home, I'm gonna buy gas and forget to write it down. Which means my checkbook is never infallible. I'm gonna juxtapose two digits. I'm gonna get some math wrong. My checkbook can be briefly inerrant, it can never be infallible, but God's word is both. There are no errors, there can be no errors. Because it is inspired and inerrant and infallible, it is therefore authoritative. It's authoritative. Scripture is where God has spoken authoritatively. You wanna know what God thinks? Work to know what the word of God says. Because this is what God thinks. This is the expressed heart, will, and direction of the living God. Not only is this that, this alone is that, which leads to our fifth word. This is sufficient. You need not look anywhere else. This has been given by God that you would be complete and equipped for every good work. No, it will not tell you how to make lasagna. But the things that God wants you to know, that God needs you to understand, that will usher you in to eternal life and put your life on track in this world, God has spoken. And what he has said does not need supplementing by any form of new revelation. We do not need a new word from God. 
In fact, you should reject any claim, whether it comes from a dream, a vision, a church official of any church, claiming to have new revelation from God, reject it on the grounds of the sufficiency of Scripture. God has spoken with both authority and finality in his word. If you have some new vision at two in the morning that's giving you some new direction, it ain't God, it's Taco Bell. (laughs) Oh, the visions I have had. And not only does this, by the way, direct our church, this one should also direct your personal decision-making. Seek God where he has spoken. Trust him in your decision-making where he has not spoken. And know that he loves you a lot. And what he needs from you, he has expressed in his word. We magnify his word to develop disciples. This is the mission of the church. This is why there is a church functionally, the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to make disciples. The heart of our purpose is to make disciples. Other organizations exist to other ends, but the church specifically exists to develop disciples. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. We know this in shorthand and refer to it often as the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission. In that grammar there, it's a little bit, it's a little bit um, off in our English, not badly, but it's a little less clear than it ought to be that there is one imperative verb, there's one commandment, and it's supported by three participles, if you're a grammarian. That means it's telling you to do one thing and it's giving you three ing verbs to tell you what it's gonna look like when you do it. The, The sole original language imperative is make disciples. The command of Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is make disciples, three ways, going, baptizing, teaching. The go in our ESV should have an ING. Make disciples and do that by going. Do that by baptizing, the implication being evangelism. Do that by teaching. We make disciples. In the weeks ahead, we'll we'll discuss four measures. This list could have been 20, it could have been two. But, but we have landed on four, which we believe cover quite well the heart of what it is to be a growing disciple. And what will be uniquely driving much of, of our measurement and, and uh, goal setting and all those things in the life of our church. Four things about the disciples we strive to develop here. First, disciples who think biblically. Who think biblically. It grieves my heart to see members of the body of Christ bloody their noses and shipwreck their decision-making because they simply did not take the time to learn what God's word said about a matter they took on. 
On the other hand, it blesses me like few things do to see growing Christians say, you know what, this is what I thought I knew, but I looked at God's word and this is what I need to do about that straight out of God's word. Yes, God has spoken. Think biblically, live missionally. We are ambassadors for Christ sent into this world with his message for his ends. We live the entirety of our lives within a framework of his missionary sending of us to this place that is not our ultimate home. Live missionally, give generously. Oh, how we have grown in our, in our understanding of joyful generosity. It's bigger than what we give at church. Certainly includes that, but it's a way of life. It should be for the believer. And then love sacrificially because that's what love requires, if it's well understood. In our homes, in our communities, in our church, in our world, to love sacrificially. That'll be our study in the weeks ahead.